Thanks so much, Sam. <clears throat> if you guys have not turned there yet, uh, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, that's where we'll be spending the bulk of our time together. I also want to thank Jared and Kinsey uh, for, for sharing with us your guys' hearts. Um, it's heavy and hard, yet it's beautiful to see the hope that we have in God in the midst of it. Um, and ultimately, as we come to this series uh, that we've titled The Coming King, it is a series of, of hope as you get to rejoice in the fact that we have a king that not only is coming as we see, but has come and has conquered death and has given us life. See, there's just something about monarchies that I think we as humans kind of love. We have this odd fascination and obsession with them. I mean, think of the countless movies and shows that have been produced they either have to do with the rise or the fall of a monarchy or just the, the individual that, that rises to power within that. I think of movies like Gladiator and Braveheart, Troy or, or Man in the Iron Mask, or even a movie like What a Girl Wants. You know, it hits all spheres of our culture. I mean, you think of, of Netflix and you've got The Crown that's in its third season that's walking through the queen's life. We have whole sections of magazines and, and newspapers that focus specifically on the royal family in England. We want to be caught up with their weddings. We want to be caught up with their babies. We want to find out what they named their babies. And most importantly for some of us, it's, it's whether Meghan Markle will play her part or dishonor the crown. You see, monarchies fascinate us. And yet at the same time, we definitely lack the desire to actually be ruled by a monarchy. I mean, our very country was founded on the principle of, of actually fighting against a monarchy, fighting against the crown. There are many wars and coups to destroy monarchies. And even when we look at England's current monarchy, it's more of a figurehead than an actual ruling authority. You see, we in the West fight for democracy with all that we have. So, so what is it about monarchy that actually makes it lose its lackluster draw? C.S. Lewis said the real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no man should be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. See, for many of us, the thought of one person having all power and authority over our life is too much to bear, too much to grapple with, it's terrifying. And so we'd rather just reject the notion altogether. We don't like the idea of kings or queens because when we look at the kings and queens available, they're all finite and they're all sinful. You see, every king is finite. His reign is shorter and really short in the grand scheme of life, and it often seems that the good one's reigns are far too short. And yet we also see that they're sinful. They're human, just like us. And so they fail in many capacities. I mean, we even look at King David in the Bible, a man that's described as a man after God's own heart, and yet does grievous sins against his fellow man and against God. Sinful king or queen after sinful king or queen is not an attractive look for a monarchy. But what if there was a king that didn't fit into either of those categories? What if there was a king who was actually worthy 
to submit to. A king worthy actually to die for. A king worthy to sit on the throne and a king in which his reign would not end. A king who is not sinful, but actually holy and righteous. If such a king existed, then with one accord, we could say, long live the king. See, the pronouncement we read today is of such a king as that. We serve a God in which nothing will be impossible. And today we see the impossible become possible. As God sends his people, the righteous king that they have been waiting for and so desperately need. So let's set the stage as we enter into the gospel of Luke. It's in the days of Herod, who's the king of Judea. And we're introduced to this priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And we're told that they're righteous and blameless before God. But the problem is that Elizabeth is barren and old, without child. And so Zechariah is performing his priestly duties in the temple. Um, and Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, appears to him and proclaims that Elizabeth, his wife, will become pregnant and bear a son. And that son is to be named John, which we come to know as John the Baptist. And Zechariah's response to the angel is actually one of doubt, as he's kind of like, well, give me some kind of sign to make sure that this is actually going to happen. And in a sense, the sign that Gabriel gives him is he makes him mute until his son is born. And yet, lo and behold, as Gabriel said, Elizabeth becomes with child. And that brings us up to today's text as the story shifts in setting. Yet once again, we have Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, visiting an unsuspecting individual and telling them they will be with child. A very significant child, a future king. And in contrast to Zechariah, her response is not one of doubt, but one of humble obedience. Let's once again read our text. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of meeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the king, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived a child. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So six months has gone by since Elizabeth has conceived. And Gabriel, the same angel that spoke to Zechariah, goes to Galilee and appears to Mary and tells her, Hey, you have, ha you have favor 
with God. The God most high has found favor in you. And you're actually going to bear a child. And that child you are going to name Jesus. And he will sit on the throne of David. He will be king. And all you see, we see she's perplexed by this whole announcement. Not only is it crazy because she has an angel standing before her, but the news he delivers doesn't seem to fit within the current reality as, as she says, well, well, I'm a virgin. She's betrothed to Joseph, but that means just an engagement. She has never slept with him nor any other man. And so her question actually comes more out of a factual standpoint than it does a doubting. She's saying, well, Gabriel, how will this, how will this be? Because I, I physically cannot do that. Yet Gabriel tells her that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's through the power of God that she will bear a child. For as the angel said, nothing will be impossible with God. And incredibly, Mary, in contrast to Zechariah, replies to the angel by saying, she's, she's your servant, and she will let it come to pass. Complete submission and obedience to the words. You see, this incredibly powerful story foretells the coming of Jesus Christ foretells the coming of a king who will rule and rule for all eternity. You see, the message can be simple, and yet it is life-altering profound. He's saying, behold, the rightful king, the holy son of God, is coming to reign forever. Let that soak in. That's what Advent is about. That's what this celebration is about that we call Christmas. The king is coming, and he's come, and he rules. And in regards to this coming king, this story makes two things really clear. One, how the king will come, and two, who the king will be. So how will this king come? Have you ever thought about how Jesus came into the world? Like the significance of the means in which he arrived. Of all the people in the Middle East why Mary and Joseph? Or even why Galilee? See how interesting that God chose Galilee and not Judea. That he chose Nazareth and not Jerusalem. And he actually chose a, a, a woman's house instead of the temple. See, he passed over Judea, the center of the land God had chosen for his people. He passed over Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and he passed over his temple where he was said to dwell to go to Galilee, a region held in contempt by the Jews, a region viewed as a hotbed of corruption of Roman soldiers and just Greek caravans. I mean, hence the words of Nathaniel in John 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet God gives us a resounding yes. He's taking the impossible and turning it into possible. Yet not only is the location significant, but who he comes through. You see, the Lord Jesus, our King, comes through Mary and through God to the household of Joseph. So first, we see that the King will come through Mary. In nine verses, Luke tells us three times that Mary is a virgin. And 27, a virgin betrothed. And 28, the virgin's name is Mary. And 34, I am a virgin. Bringing that point home very clearly. You see, God chose to break into the universe by choosing to enter through a virgin. 
And a virgin birth highlights the supernatural nature and the supernatural power of God. You see, God did the impossible. Of the billions of people that have ever been born, only Jesus has entered the world this way. I mean, even in our scientifically advanced world, pregnancy is impossible without an egg and a sperm. Immaculate conception is impossible, humanly speaking. The supernatural has to occur. And it's by an act of God and God alone that the virgin could be with child. See, God does this to point to this child's divinity. God reveals his power and strength through Jesus' conception. This virgin birth also highlights the truth of Scripture, how it's something that we can legitimately cling to because Israel's been waiting for centuries for this Messiah to come. They've been waiting for a deliverer. I mean, the prophet Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a child, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's just pointing to saying that the things that God says will come to pass will come to pass. And this virgin birth also highlights the humanity of Christ because he was born of a woman. Therefore, he was really born, physically born to this world. He has really become one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, he knew what it meant to be human. He knew what the struggles of this life looked like, of the pain and hurt and sorrow that we experience, yet the joy we experience. I mean, in Hebrews it says, for we do not have a high priest who is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. In all the battles that we experience, Jesus, being fully man, has sat in those as well. But yet he has also been without sin. And it is through his humanity that actually makes him the only perfect and acceptable sacrifice. Without the sinlessness of Christ and the humanity of Christ, there is no salvation. I mean, Paul picks this up in Galatians when he says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, that is Mary, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. So we see that this king will come through Mary, this this virgin woman. Yet we also see that the king will come through God, because as we acknowledge, this virgin has to have something above and outside of humanity to make this immaculate conception come to be. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, the Son of God is pointing us to God himself, the creator God, the one that took man and woman and made them out of dust. That God is saying, I'm going to make my child within this woman. As Piper says, God himself, the Holy Spirit, The impossibly working power, the power of the Most High, will take the place of a human, a human father. And under the shadow of his wings, pure, virtuous, holy, unseen, mysterious, 
Mary will become pregnant with the Son of God. See, God as Father highlights Jesus' divinity. He's made fully God. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. says Colossians 2.9. Through the Holy Spirit and the overshadowing of God, his Son, this Jesus will be held from the contamination of sin that is present in human nature. He came as the one who became fully man and yet was not defiled by sin, for he was fully God. And this reality, this odd and seeming impossible reality, is known as the hypostatic union. And God is pure and, and without stain. He's without blemish or fault. And so, so will his only begotten son be, pure, without stain, without blemish. God and man coming together. See, Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine as God's Son and human as Mary's Son. The impossible becoming possible. And that's why we see that the king comes through the household of Joseph. You see, Jesus has a divine father, not a biological father, but God in his providence elected Joseph to serve as his father while on earth. And so Jesus is born into the household of Joseph. I mean, Jesus even takes on the occupation of his dad, a carpenter, until he begins his role or begins his ministry at the age of 30. What's interesting is that God did not break into the universe just in some generic human out somewhere, but he specifically broke into the universe as a Jew who would fulfill the covenant promises that had been spoken of for thousands of years. For Joseph is in the household of David. He's in David's line. Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1 points back to this reality. And Luke references the household of David. We should immediately be drawn back to the Davidic covenant, where God told David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Not only was it spoken of to David himself, but we see the prophets even pick up on this reality, and this is what Israel has been longingly waiting for. The prophet Isaiah says, There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is David's dad, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Or Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming. It's looking to the future. When I will rise up for David, a righteous branch, and you shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, Gabriel in this story is speaking of a day that is fast approaching when these realities will come to fruition. See, finally, a child will be born who will take the rightful place as king and actually be the rightful, holy, upright king that Israel needs. A king whose throne knows no end. So we see how this king will come to be. He'll come through 
this virgin woman Mary, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God into the household of Joseph, that he may rise up and be the king that Israel needs. He'll come through supernatural and miraculous means. But who will this child be? Who is this king? We see four things from this text. The first, the king will be Jesus. Verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. How amazing that the name of this coming king literally means Yahweh will save. This covenant God that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, it's that God that will save. And what's also interesting is that, that Jesus was not an uncommon name at the time. See, in Hebrew, the name Jesus actually meant Joshua. And so for Mary, who is a good, upstanding Jewish woman, she would automatically think back to Joshua, who was the successor of Moses. And what's interesting is Moses actually changed Joshua's name from Hoshua to Jehoshua, which means salvation, to the Lord is salvation, the Lord being Yahweh. And what's interesting is you look back on that story, you see that Joshua, or the Lord is salvation, brought Israel into the promised land. And yet centuries later, we have another Joshua born, Jesus, who came to his people, yet his people expand from just Israel to to the Israelites and the Gentiles. And he leads them into an eternal promised land. He leads them into an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the true and better Joshua that brings his people into salvation. I mean, as Matthew 1 even says, when speaking of the name Jesus, he says he will save his people from their sins. This is Jesus. This is our king. Secondly, we see that the king will be the son of the Most High. The king will be the son of God. This just reiterates this idea that it's the fullness of deity. The fullness of God dwells in this man, Jesus. The creator God sent his son to become flesh and dwell among his people. Like, sit and let that sink in the creator God of the universe sent all of himself into a man to be among his people. The love and the affection and the humility that is present in that is is mind-boggling. And that's our king. See, the fullness and character is in the very fabric of his being. His mercy, God's grace, the fact that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's faithful, this forgiving spirit, and a rightful judge. He is those things. What amazing characteristics Jesus has. Like, is he not worthy to be praised? Is he not worthy to bend knee to in humble adoration and service? 
3. The king will be the eternal ruler. Verse 33. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Jesus is the rightful heir. He is the son of David that never failed in obeying God, that never failed in following through. So he's the rightful son of David to sit upon the throne and to live out the reality of the Davidic covenant, saying that this kingdom will last forever. See, Jesus, being both God and man, is the only one that can actually sit in that spot and be king to never be replaced. You see, we no longer have a finite king, but we have an infinite one, one with no beginning and no end. His kingdom is forever, and he is worthy of submitting to because his kingdom is good. His kingdom is good. We get a glimpse of that in the last book of the Bible in Revelation where he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For Jesus... Long of the king is not a hope, but it's a current reality. It's an eternal reality. And lastly, number four, we see this king will be holy. Verse 35. The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So long live the king, for he is holy. R.C. Sproul Um, who wrote a whole entire book on holiness, said that the primary meaning of the word holy is separate, or if you will, theological apartheid. That which is holy is that which is other, that which is different from something else. When the Bible speaks of God's holiness, the primary thrust of those passages is to refer to God's transcendence, to his magnificence, to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything there is in the creaturely realm. See, Jesus is utterly set apart. And yet, even in his set-apartness, he came to dwell among sinful, broken humanity. A humanity that rebels against God day in and day out. And he said, I'm going to be amongst my people. We no longer have a sinful king but rather we have the only sinless king. For he is pure, he is good, without blemish, without defect, without deficiency. He is the true essence of whole. And you see, it's this holiness that gives us hope. It's this full picture of both divine and human and without spot, without blemish that gives us, as a broken, rebellious people, hope today and hope for eternity. For through his holiness and his purity, he was the only one who was worthy and able to be the sacrifice that we need, the sacrifice that we accept. For when Christ came into the world, he said in Hebrews, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. You see, the sins of his people have to be dealt with. Burnt offerings and sin offerings are not sufficient to please God. For perfect God cannot be in the presence of imperfection. There has to be a sacrifice that can fulfill all past sacrifices, all the needs of his people. There has to come one who is the pure and spotless Lamb of God that can actually bridge that gap between man and God. Someone who would be willing to die on our behalf so that we may actually be made right with God. And Jesus, the Son of God, and yet the Son of Man, is the only one. And Jesus willingly did that. It is through his blood that we are saved. And it is through his sacrifice that we can step into the throne room of God and reside with our true king as his people, as his heirs. See, this is our king. This is the coming king that we rejoice of in this season. And he is worthy to be praised. Again, the whole Advent season, this week and the next three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, is all as an anticipation of Christ's birth. And it's a time to reflect on who Christ is and what he has done. It's a season to rejoice and to celebrate. It's not a season to focus on how much I can receive, but rather on what I've already received through Christ. So I urge and encourage you throughout the season to spend time meditating on who Christ is and what Christ has done. Sit in the reality that his name is Jesus. The very name Yahweh will save. That he is our savior. Sit in the reality that we need a savior. We need the true and better king to reign in our lives. Meditate on the fact that he's fully human and fully God. How apart from that reality, we are still broken in our sins, but we needed the humanity and the deity to combine together to be that sacrifice. And bask in the reality that he is our eternal ruler. The sinless, infinite king has arrived. And he is king of our lives. The question is, are you letting him live in such a way? Do we actually treat him as king in our life? And I encourage and challenge you in this season to, to let that sink in and to let that question permeate in your mind. This is the king we talk about. Is it just a, an infatuation with monarchies, but we don't actually want him to have control? Or do we say, I'm going to give up control of my life and, and give it to the one true righteous king who is good, who is pure, who is holy, and reigns for eternity? And may we be people that humble ourselves in front of God's and Christ's holiness.
For it is through him that we have been saved and brought into the fold of God. You see, in a sense, we should have an obsession and infatuation with monarchies because through King Jesus, we become part of one. We become heirs with God. Like How amazing. We are royal kids of the king. It gives us reason to rejoice because of what God has done. Let's reflect on who our king is. Isaiah 9 says, For to us a child is born, and to us a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of, this, of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, brothers and sisters, this is our king. And his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. See, with one voice, we can boldly and loudly proclaim, long live the king. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and praise you for this season, Lord. Praise you for a season that has been designed to look up to the coming of your son, the coming of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your words that give us life. And we thank you and praise you for the scripture we get to sit in today, Lord. As we get to see who your son is, who this king is that you have sent to this earth. Lord God, we praise you that, that you are the God that saves. Lord, we praise you that you sent your son to dwell among a broken and rebellious humanity. Because you love us. You love your people and you want us into your kingdom. So God, may we be people that rejoice in that reality and spend this season reflecting on your goodness day in and day out. In your name we pray, amen.